Welcome to the Insight Myanmar podcast. Before we get into today's show, I wanted to let you know that we have a lot more written and video content on our website. If you haven't visited yet, we invite you to take a look at www.insightmyanmar.org. In addition to complete information about all of our past podcasts, there's also a variety of blogs, books, and videos to check out. And you can sign up for our regular newsletter as well. But for now, enjoy what follows, and remember, sharing is caring. Iron fists and tender souls, broken hearts and broken homes. Suffering is invisible to those who cannot see anything beyond paper bills. which was my first visit to Burma, as uh, everyone called it in those days. My later-to-be first husband and I were traveling around the world for about a year until I came down with uh, hepatitis from some bad water, probably in Calcutta and went to a hospital in Malaysia, and then we came back home. But during the second part of that trek, we were up in Nepal, heading back uh, down into India, and we heard about seven-day visas to get into Burma, and that was the max. It was very tightly controlled. So we thought, why not? We'll fly into uh, Rangoon in those days and then fly on to Calcutta. So when we arrived, and this is mid-70s, things were dark there as far as the country was very, very closed off. In Rangoon, there was a YMCA. So being the backpacking kind of kind of hippies that we were, we decided to stay at the YMCA. We didn't have a lot of cash. But since it was the men's um, entity, they got a lot better deal, which I maybe should have been enlightened uh, about the differences between rights of men and women even then. So my husband, later to be my husband, had a huge dorm room for the guys. And they had uh, wooden pallets uh, raised off the floor to put sleeping bags on. 
They had a lot of windows with screens, uh, fans overhead. It was uh, it was pretty good. The women, on the other hand, had a very very small room, probably a fifth of the size of the the men's dorm. Uh, it, it was just a room with a door and one window, nothing on the floor. So myself and the other women that soon became very good friends, up close and personal, we um, slept on the floor. There was no screen on the window. It was the hot season and the mosquitoes were rampant. And so a lot of us tried to stay under the covers of our sleeping bags so we wouldn't get bitten alive. Others couldn't handle it. When we woke up in the morning, most of the women had extremely swollen faces, just completely out there. Uh, mine was bad, but not quite as bad. And that was my first uh, night in Burma, was in the YMCA. It didn't get us down. We enjoyed the markets, looked around the city, very awestruck. And we only had time probably to go to one place, which we would have to fly to. So we went to Bagan. And oh my, oh my, I since returned in um, the early 2000s. But it was a miracle place with uh, the thousands of pagodas they have there up on the plateau and the uh, sunrises and the sunsets and the ability, unlike most monuments in other countries, the ability to, you know, climb on the pagodas, um, sit wherever we wanted, meander around them in the open fields. It was it was magical, especially the sunset. And we stayed in a little, little tiny room, which was actually a lot better than the YMCA, and had uh, our breakfasts there served by uh, older women in their lunches. And on their breaks, they would stand out on the porch and smoke their cigars and look at us and try to figure out what we were doing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we weren't too familiar with the Burmese food, and so we would go for fried rice with a fried egg on top, which, you know, a little bit of protein hit the spot, and we were good to go. Um, so it was a mixed but yet um, stepping back in time experience for us on our worldwide trek, and um, one that when I look back on it now, I think it was kind of setting the groundwork for me to end up going at least once a year and empowering <clears throat> women and girls there with education. So it was a nice little tie-in for me back in 1974. Mm, yeah, thanks for sharing those memories. That's probably uh, at a time that you visited that was before many of our listeners, our foreign listeners, were able to go, probably before the uh, birth dates, uh, birth years of even the Burmese listeners. So really describing a, a different era there. And I guess the obvious question 
uh, especially since you've been back to Myanmar, so you've been able to compare your 1974 memories with memories from 2000 and other other years and reflecting and seeing the differences, not just in how things look, but how people act and as the culture evolved. So uh, I'm sure that uh, the amount of differences that happened between that time and your subsequent visits were quite quite many, uh, probably more than would be able to, uh, to, to, to detail in just a simple conversation. But to ask the obvious question, what, what comes off the top of your mind in terms of what differences started to manifest from that early memory of the 1974 visit? When we were there in 74, um, unfortunately, we weren't very familiar with Burma's history and um, who was in control of the country. And um, it was literally a a last minute decision to go to Burma. And and then we were, you know, there wasn't the internet like there is now, so we could just Google things and find out a lot more uh, when we went, even then, or access to internet. I did see the YMCA again uh, when I was in Yakon. Um, it still existed, but it looked like it was somewhat of a housing structure then. But I guess I would answer your question that I saw more of a continuum of changes when I, from when I started going in 2009 to uh, Current. So when I first started going, people still wouldn't look you in the eye. Um, they were still afraid of, interested in foreigners, but afraid to talk to them probably for fear of the secret police that they felt was watching them all the time. So no eye contact, uh, friendly people for sure but uh, not like it changed to later in the 2000s when everybody had a cell phone. They had um, literally learned about the outside world, connected with people. Many young people were able to travel for college outside the country and definitely eager and were seeking out foreigners to practice their English and and talk um, and learn more about the outside world. When I went to my first group, that would have been in 2009, of young college-educated people in Yangon, in the outskirts, uh, it was a group that got together Each had an area of interest uh, that made the group more um, broad and stronger. So some library, some education, some music, some art, uh, just all these different interests that the young people had. And when I met with them one-on-one with a dear British friend who was translating for me, I was telling them about a video that I had seen recently, and this was through my work with ClearPath International that focused a lot on landmines. 
And I was telling them that this video had been secreted out and it showed what I've been hearing about, that the military would go into a village and tell them, quickly pack up what you have and then you have to leave. And on this video, I could hear when the military had started burning the village down and some people still had left and they were hurrying, hurrying to get out because it was already on fire. And then the military would go in and plant landmines in the farmers' fields uh, because they didn't want them to return to that area at all. Unfortunately, a lot of the people that we dealt with um, in our um, assistance was uh, focused around the landmines. So we would see the people who, you know, potentially went back to their crops to mine them, accidentally stepped on a landmine, lost a leg, and we were t helping to provide prosthetics and teach the people how to build prosthetics out in the middle of nowhere so that um, the people who had been injured with the landmines could move around. So I, I shared this realization with this group of young activists who were considered themselves quite savvy. And the uh, woman who was translating for me, she pulled me aside immediately afterwards and she said, they don't know about these things. And if they might know about these things happening, it's safer for them not to know. And of course, I felt horrible then that I had shared this information because I didn't want to get any of them uh, in harm's way. But I was also, it, it hit me how isolated Burma was. Um, yes, we were able to visit there. But these people didn't know what was happening anywhere else in the country. And they didn't have the means, whether it be via phone or internet or probably even very much with mail, um, to communicate to each other what was happening. And of course, they didn't know anything about the Western world except what they were being told by the military government. And so it was a real eye-opener for me to realize um, where they were in that um, paradigm shift. And then over the next years, I watched them opening up and learning more and wanting more. And then wham, the coup, and the country tried to close. But these young people who pretty much grew up from let's say, 10, 11, on where they expected uh, more news of the world and, and involvement. Um, it was amazing to see them all of a sudden come alive and be interested. And then even more heartbreaking to see the junta um, where they are now trying to take it all away again. So I would say the, the opening up and, and how far it needed to go to create that awareness for people was the biggest change that I've seen over the years. When I, well, 
ClearPath International provided landmine assistance in Southeast Asia and Afghanistan. And uh, my post-bureaucrat career became one of international development, which I was actually eventually paid for, but started out as a volunteer and then got back to volunteering again. Um, but, oh, I'm just, oh, so uh, one of our, we dealt a lot with the Shan State because we could go up on the Thai Burma border up to Mesot and um, connect with people in Burma more readily and a lot of organizations in Mesot that um, had people on the ground inside Burma. And the Shan were one of the ethnic groups that we taught to make prosthetics. And, and they had a, a base in Chiang Mai, Thailand. So on one of my trips, um, uh, towards probably close to 2010 or 11, I went with Yi Tip, a friend, um, Sean friend, who wanted to take me up to Loi Talang, which is um, a displaced person camp up on the, the crest of the mountains in between Thailand and Burma. So it was quite the adventure even getting there. Um, we were able to drive, but whew, it was hard to look sometimes. So we went to Loi Talang, and first of all, a lot of the people who'd had their limbs lost or their partners killed and their villages burned were living in places like Loi Talang. And so we were also teaching them um, different ways to earn money and at least to feel productive and empowered, like growing mushrooms to sell or a lot of the animal husbandry, the, the pigs uh, or the chickens and that kind of thing. So food in that case, plus um, having piglets, selling them, getting more pigs and having kind of a pyramid scheme with pigs. Uh, but it was there that I had kind of been thinking of leaving Clear Path because landmines and all of that victim assistance I totally believed in, but it, it wasn't my heart. My heart is empowering women and girls, and I know how powerful an educated girl or woman is and can be and how she can improve our world. So I was already kind of leaning towards doing something in a nonprofit for that purpose. And I remember meeting this one woman who was um, out for a walk with her little girl in a kind of a makeshift pack on her back. And um, we kind of tried to talk that it language barrier wasn't going very far. But she she had the this beautiful, beautiful smile. And when I was asking Yi Tip more about this later, he was telling me that yes, these people they find joy. Yes, their village has been burnt down. Their life has been uprooted. They're in this displaced person camp. 
life hasn't been easy. It wasn't easy before, and it was even more difficult now. But they were able to see hope. And I believe if you have hope, just believing in it, you can do anything eventually. You may have to suffer a lot before you get there, but you can get there. And so when I saw this woman smiling with the little bit that she had, I realized they're the people I want to help. Women like her who have hope and I want to provide education for them. So that was kind of the turning point where I eventually left Clear Path and started educational empowerment with two other women here um, in 2012, officially with our 501c3 nonprofit status uh, in the U.S. But both of those um, stories about the village and about meeting these people up at Loy Lang and hearing more about their stories that were uh, turning points for me to be driven to help Burma. When we set up the nonprofit, we had a lot of discussions. Do we call it Burma? Do we call it Myanmar? Since we wanted to be able to apply for grants, we wanted um, not to be dismissive of anybody in the country. We didn't want to put ourselves at risk by calling it Burma when we would be visiting. So we decided to uh, call the country Myanmar. And yet we also had a lot of State Department funding with Clear Path International and a little bit with Educational Empowerment or EE as I call it for a short version. Um, the State Department wasn't recognizing the junta, so they still referred to the country as Burma. But we decided at our small-scale little nonprofit that we would call it Myanmar. And so now I'm kind of in the middle where I, I call it both, but I wanted to clarify that. Right. So you're describing in both those stories examples of the Tamada's four-cut strategy. This was a, a famous, uh, infamous, one should say, uh, military strategy where to deprive the ethnic villages of um, of survival and sustenance. Basically, they were trying to cut off four things. That was funding, food, intelligence, and recruits. And yes. your story about making them leave the village and then planting landmines so that they were not able to plant food, that reminds me of a couple of stories I've heard in the last few months, uh, equally devastating, just showing how long this conflict has been going on and how mm -hmm. ignored these atrocities continue to be as the world looks away. Uh, a friend, a Mar friend of mine who joined the PDF was in Karen State, and he just a few days ago, he related a conversation to me about with a local villager uh, noting that nowhere in the region or in the town were there any any buildings of any substantial size uh, and and even any any agricultural areas that could feed uh, larger communities and my friend was quite confused about this and when he asked the and this was one of his intercultural learning experiences of being a Bamar from the cities and Karen countryside 
he was told, well, the, the minute we would start to build a bigger house or start to plant a larger field, uh, we could expect later in the year the military would come to uh, put landmines or poison or burn or something else because this is part of the four-cut strategy. They don't want us to, to be able to grow or set roots or have stability. And so the only way we can survive is everything just sustenance, just barely uh, uh, having a, a shelter that's barely enough to be able to live, having food that's barely enough to be able to survive, education, whatever else, that's just barely enough to s- stay off the radar and not have it burned down or worse. Um, uh, another story that that indicates this, uh, there is a Dave Eubank of the Free Burma Rangers had an incident a few months ago where there was a, a woman in some village, I'm not sure which ethnic region it was, that was, um, she was simply trying to plant the paddy, the rice paddy, to be able to have a yield in later in the year. And every time she would go somewhere close to the field, uh, there would be, uh, there, there were some uh, Tamada snipers that were somewhere in the area and they would just shoot. They would, they would shoot anytime someone approached, which was only for the purpose of preventing, knowing that they were preventing food from being harvested and grown to feed those communities. So just a single, uh, a single patty they were trying to prevent, um, they, they were trying to stop from, um, from being planted and the, the really, uh, incredible dramatic video of Dave Eubank actually crawling through oh. this, um, this paddy, uh, under sniper fire to be able to plant, uh, just a couple of these, um, um, the, the, the rice to be able to grow and uh, under the sniper fire. And it just, uh, you know, the, obviously the, I, I think the, the, the cruelty and the inhumanity of these stories definitely stand out. But I think as you, as you look at these stories in greater depth and the, some of the deeper rationale behind, I think one of the things that starts to come out is not just the, the, the obvious inhumanity or cruelness, but actually the cowardice. Um, and this is part and parcel of the Tamara's mission. They don't want to fight battles with someone of equal stature. They, they want to be able to pick on the vulnerable people, on those that are not easily able to fight back. And so they're, they're looking to pick fights that they know they can win just as bullies, as, as being able to push others around uh, without any kind of, eth- obviously no kind of ethical standing with what they do. But, you know, this is a professional organized army that is looking to constantly avoid conflict with any kind of equal foe and is looking for vulnerable populations they can bully and harass and threaten as a means of being able to weaken the more serious enemies that they probably couldn't win against. And so this is why in in, in the past decades and still today, we continue to hear about these stories where they're they're looking for who they can bully and who they can pick on and and these, these kind of easy pickings. And I'm sure that you've encountered this kind of behavior often throughout your decades in service in Myanmar. Yeah. Um, and I have the utmost respect for the um, Bur- Burma Rangers. Um, they, they're just amazing. Um, so I just had to say that. <laughs> um, hmm. I guess, you know, I, with the, the junta, they're also not the smartest people in the world, and they're in such a, um, a cult situation 
and also fearful of um, being caught doing something they shouldn't be doing or, or definitely, you know, deflecting but um, or defecting. But um, your point about bullies is excellent, that bullies are everywhere, and the fact that Myanmar right now is in a limbo situation where nobody, no other governments are recognizing anybody there. They aren't recognizing the junta and they aren't recognizing uh, the national unity government. And so with war crimes where they're starting to, and you're helping, I'm sure, collect uh, hard data on a lot of these circumstances, there's nobody to take control because the UN isn't recognizing who's in charge. Uh, the United States isn't. And part of, I guess, my goal right now, I feel so helpless that I can't go there. I can't um, do more than I'm doing right now with educational empowerment. I, I feel helpless. And so I figure I can help create awareness, at least, so that Myanmar is not forgotten, and especially the women and girls' voices aren't forgotten. And um, it, I decided that's all really that I can do, and so I want to do that, and so I'm very grateful for this opportunity to be interviewed on Insight Myanmar's podcast. I wanted to along those lines, share a story of a Kareni friend here. And she, um, well, her family, they were red Karen or Kareni, but of Kaya and Karen uh, heritage, the husband and wife, her mom and dad. And they fled into Thailand to a Kareni refugee camp in 1992. Because again, the um, villages burned, you know, people were being displaced, and the options for being displaced too were not ones where there was um, good land for crops at all. It was more of a mountainous area with not enough water either. And so the parents went into this Kareni refugee camp and uh, my friend Elizabeth was born there in, um, let's see, look at my notes here, in 1997. And then they stayed there until 2009 when they were able to um, immigrate to the U.S., and they live here in Washington State in uh, the um, South King County, where there's a, a good-sized um, Burmese community. And so Elizabeth had some of her childhood there, none inside the country, and then middle school and on up now to college here. She wrote a poem that um, she shared with me, and I, I'm going to read that because now she is looking back at her homeland 
And the Kareni state, once again, is being hit extremely hard with um, violence and bombing and burning and just like the Chin state. So her poem is called, and she's worried about the heritage. And so her poem is called um, Imagine. Imagine in the future, how are our Kareni state going to become? Will we still have our mother's custom and our father's place? Imagine in the future, who will our Kareni youth become? Will our language and our literature still exist? Imagine in the future, who will our future generations become? Will love, peace, and freedom remain with them? Imagine. So that's the voice of a young refugee here who's watching the current situation in her country and fearing that her whole culture will be wiped out. Thus my driven plan for awareness as much as I can, including writing a book. Mm, right. And that brings me to the next question. <clears throat> Looking from the standpoint of these foreign allies, and definitely count you in that category of being a foreign ally to Myanmar over the years, you've been at this a long time in one form or another. And you're just seeing the same patterns repeat themselves over and over and the world continuing, international organizations, communities, countries continuing to really do not much more than just give the same statements with, as the, the, the Tamara, as you said, is not smart, but they're smart enough to know how to take those same statements and do the same things with them to keep the lights off in the country and go through the motions as they keep control on power. And as you've been through these same patterns and you've been voicing the same concerns, crying out kind of against the wind in the, in the dark without <laughs> much interest, uh, wider interest from other people that are, are looking to be engaged, the same thing is still happening now. I would put other long-term allies in that category as well. People like Dave Eubank or Gene Hallisey, uh, Edith Morant, uh, Alan Clements, or uh, David Mathiasen, people that are far, uh, their, their, uh, their support and their years as allies far outnumber mine. And they've seen these patterns, they've lived through these patterns in real time, like yourself following year by year, the developments and the same thing keeps happening. I was actually, uh, a couple weeks ago, I had Matita on a podcast. She was a 88 activist and wrote a book about her experiences. And as I was reading her book, recounting the 1988 um, uh, social unrest and her involvement, at, at times there were pages where I forgot I was reading about 1988. I thought I was reading something in the news that happened a few weeks ago because the same patterns were there. And so I'm just wondering if you could speak a bit to perhaps your frustration, your uh, if you have any reasoning or or if you can explain to me, because I certainly don't know why it is that that people just don't care about this particular issue. Is it geography? Is it skin color? Is it, um, uh, is it proximity? Uh, has Myanmar just been put into a category of uh, a one-dimensional story of a, of a broken country? And that's, 
And so when more problems happen, it just kind of goes in the category of like, oh yeah, well that's the place where a lot of, uh, there's a lot of hard, a lot of bad things happening and this is another bad thing. And so it's not quite as shocking when, when this is happening to what we would call a stable country, dare I say a white country. But in, in any sense, I'm wondering, you're being an ally and an activist for so many years. What is your feeling and what is your rationale for why these same patterns keep happening over and over and over again? And there's just simply not the engagement to to do something about it against a, a, an enemy that's not that strong and not that smart. And yet mm-hmm. um, they they just keep in control. Um, I guess I think two factors. Um kind of are ones that I keep getting stuck on. One is the fact that the country was really closed off for at least 50 years. And so you have generations growing up that only know one way of life. And and they don't know that the West is good. They just hear what they hear, like in Korea. And, and that's their world. They know they're hungry. They know um, there used to be books and then there were no books again. They, I mean, they've, they've seen changes, but they don't know farther. But now the youth that have lived the last... 12, 15 years of having more awareness have, and you probably are already aware of this, but they have joined networks in other countries. They've learned how to communicate quickly, how to mobilize. And I truly believe that the civil disobedience movement today was launched so readily and so smartly because of these young people who already had the tools in their heads and the connections to be able to put this together and and to, as part of that, communicate without being caught too much within the country. So how to get around the junta's um, laws and walls and as safely as possible. But they're also willing to give their lives for moving forward. And then I see the um, geography. I do think surrounded by big countries and speaking as an American, I'm always amazed to hear how few Americans have traveled outside the U.S. Um, Not everybody here cares about the rest of the world. They just, there's things in the news, whether it's accurate news or not, they, they believe it, but they really don't care. They're in their own lives here. And this probably happens in a lot of the other countries also. So yeah, there's India near them, there's China, but but what's this other little country there? Burma? Well, I heard about the Burma Road and during the war with the Japanese, etc. But what is Burma or Myanmar? And then they hear about Aung San Suu Kyi, 
So they know that name, but they really don't even know too much about her story. And there isn't a lot written. When um, I started thinking about, thinking seriously about doing a book, one of, and I hope to um, find a publisher who will work with me. I self-published a book during COVID, and that was a great, great learning experience and a great distraction from uh, COVID. But I decided I want to go bigger and, and get a broader scope for Myanmar. And so I learned that one of the uh, things that they want you to do is what other books are out there. There are not very many books. I mean, I've read quite a few books about Burma, but there are very few because literally there were no books being published. Our, my nonprofit published ethnic folktale books to save the folktales in the different ethnic uh, groups, um, but also to provide picture books for the little kids because a lot of them growing up when I started working there had never seen, let alone touched, a picture book. So we've continued to publish five new books a year since 2012 with different, sometimes in three languages, Burmese and uh, Chin and English. So the uh, folktales will be preserved. But now libraries are coming back again, too. And one of our partners worked strongly with libraries around the country to ensure that they were starting to come back. So I, I do think the fact that they were so, so closed off, it takes a long time to catch up and for people to care. And we were just kind of getting there, I thought. And maybe that's another reason, although Congress was going to convene and, and then Parliament there would have had a majority of Democrats so I'm sure that was the immediate driving force for the coup. I, I do think that having more knowledge about the country, just it's layer on layer on layer on layer. And even at the beginning where I knew we wanted to work with educational empowerment for women, it was about awareness because everybody I would talk to at home, they'd say, where? Well, okay. I think I heard of Aung San Sushi, but um, I don't know anything about that country. So if there's no books, there's not people talking about the country, uh, and it's not uh, visibly uh, apparent on uh, a lot of maps, then it's hard to create that knowledge about the country. And um, I do think that having the national unity government recognized as an entity is a huge step moving along. Dr. Sasa, who's kind of the de facto head of that entity, is um, very active in trying to create awareness and having his name out there of telling stories. Um, if we can get the people to persevere, easy for me to say here, 
safe and sound in my house. But if we can get them to persevere and the UN is meeting, I think this week, the Human Rights Council, um, maybe there is some hope. But if no one recognizes their democratic government, whatever name it's going to be, it's never going to happen. And the junta will remain de facto in control. Right now, China isn't willing to talk against the junta, just like they aren't willing to talk against Russia. And they have a stake in the country because they've been, you know, building dams and creating um, uh, transportation and pipelines. So they have a vested interest in keeping quiet on Myanmar. And it's it's a hard battle, but you are so right, and you really articulated it very well, that um, it's repeating over and over again. You mentioned um, the junta owning power. So one of the ways that, uh, especially women, women with children, like one of my dearest friends there, uh, she protested at first after the coup. She had a couple of scary, um, close situations. She's got two little ones at home. So she accepted the fact with a lot of guilt that she um, can't protest in the streets anymore. So she didn't pay her electric bills because every every chat that goes to the junta is helping to buy more bullets or tanks or machine guns or fire bombs, whatever, until, as they do now, they appeared at the door of her um, little home one night outside Yangon, and they expected to be paid right then. Otherwise, they would take her right then to prison. Meanwhile, her two adorable children were all alone in the house. So she paid it and she she was sobbing because she felt so guilty that the one thing she could do, she couldn't do any longer. So now she um, has moved outside of Yangon, like an hour and a half bus ride each way for her work. And uh, her brother-in-law, built her uh, an inexpensive house uh, the other day. And even for me, where I have a lot of different ways to communicate, it's difficult. So um, the other day I saw a post on Facebook from her, and uh, apparently she had just broken her arm. She had no electricity. She had no Wi-Fi. It's the hottest time of the year. Um, she's really tight on budget, trying to set up a house. And uh, she had to take the bus, you know, three hours every day to be able to, to earn a little money. But she's happy to be there, and she hopes to get solar panels or a generator at least. But she's happy to be there and not paying the junta. And that was her way to protest and still help even though, once again, she's also still suffering a lot. 
Um, I think that the increased collaboration between ethnic armies is a good sign right now. And um, where they were strong individually, they're even more strong united and that's why they've been able to strike back at uh, the junta and I think that has surprised the military considerably that uh, there is still active opposition to them. I, I would hope the peaceful approach takes. I think it's put the military on notice and they're very clever in how they do these things with hanging longies and period pads and underwear where they don't want the military to walk and doing things like that. But it's going to take some, anyone, the U.S. or the U.N., but one entity to cross that line and and recognize the democratic group who was elected uh, legally to have everybody tip over. It, I only think it takes one, and then the rest of them will tip. And I do believe that this is, well, it's farther than I've ever seen it go. But you're right, over the years, there's been other close closeness to having a better picture and then things fall apart again. But the military thought that they would be able to take over quite readily this time. And I do think it was a shock to them to see that people aren't willing to, to give in because they know different now. And it's the first time in a long time that they've known that there is life other than what they've lived. I don't want to be a Pollyanna, but I really, truly believe that. Mm, right. So you've been an ally of the Burmese people and for the uh, encouraging democracy and human rights in the country for some time. And I think this current conflict now, these darkest days they've ever faced, they need more of these allies than ever before. So for those listening now who are allies or maybe potential allies, uh, a couple of questions. First, what mindset, what um, framing would you suggest a, an ally take? How, how should they look at themselves and their role? And second, what can they do for those listening that are, are distressed by what's happening but feel very far away, very inconsequential, very um, uh, powerless in terms of a, an organized military uh, that's controlled the country for so many years, half a world away? Uh, what could those who want to help and don't know what to do, what, what could they do that could make even just a little bit of difference? Uh, I'm posting uh, blogs right now about Myanmar on um, an entity called Girls Globe. And they have a, a broad reach around the country. And as you would guess with their name, they care very much about girls' um, access to rights. And what I'm stressing in, in those, in addition to providing 
um, some more current information about what's going on in the country is contact your elected officials. Uh, it doesn't matter what level or which country, but start start that contact and tell them about the national unity government. Tell them that the Democrats who were elected need to be recognized. And that's something that I know in the U.S. a lot of people could do. Another thing is to donate. So I, I'm now providing links in these posts to not just uh, educational empowerment, and we are still able to get money into the country, even though it's a backdoor mechanism like we did when I first started working there actively. But, you know, I met, mentioned Better Burma. You have an extensive network and mm. Girls Globe and Girl Determined, an organization there that I have utmost respect for that have uh, girls all around the country that they're helping. And so it, just the fact that they need clothes, they need blankets, they need basic things. You know, if, if their village was burned and they left, they didn't really have the opportunity to take anything except probably the little kids. And so donate. $25, you know, goes a long way. And all of the five entities I uh, provide the links for, they can uh, give and know the money will get directly into the hands immediately to the people on the ground who really need blankets or food or a book or a smiling face or anything. So I, I, rec I uh, suggest that. And with groups here where we do have a significant um, Burmese community, you could go to wherever you live, whatever country or state, uh, to reach out to the Burmese group there. And I would guess that they're all around the U.S. And uh, in other countries, I know Ireland has a big Burmese population active. Um, the U.K. does. Uh, many of the donors for educational empowerment are in the U.K. Uh, the school we built was by a couple uh, with the help of a couple, and they have helping the Burmese Delta, where they, we built schools in the Delta. So there's there's ways to get um, word in. There's ways to get money in for help. But there's also ways to start grassroots and spread the word. And it takes a little bit longer sometimes, but it can work. And just like the work that uh, Insight Myanmar is doing. Oh my gosh, I love you guys. Uh, and I'm learning so much from you. So it's sharing information is so powerful if we just think to do it. And in our world today, I know I'm constantly told I feel so helpless. Uh, I want to help the Ukrainians. I want to help the Burmese. I want to, but what can I do? I'm just one little person. Talk to your elected officials, donate, uh, call somebody, go find a refugee that has family there that you could help. There's a lot of different small steps that 
add up to huge steps. Before we founded Educational Empowerment, I, I knew I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what I could do. And I was one of those people then who didn't do anything. Shame on me. And so now I'm trying to remind people like me that there's a lot you can do. They're just baby steps. And um, baby steps add up to miles and help for the people that we are hurting for. Mm, yeah, that's well put. Yeah, thanks for that. Uh, I, I want to go back and focus on your own story and your own interest in looking at uh, your your time in Myanmar. And you, uh, of all the travels you took uh, that at that time in seventies, and I'm sure thereafter, of all the countries and cultures you visited, Myanmar, Burma was the one that you stuck with and that really had a place within your heart. So, I'm sure you've been asked this before, but why Myanmar? Why Burma? Why? Why did this end up having a hold on you, not just in terms of exotifying it or wanting to learn more for your own benefit, but actually being involved in a series of nonprofits, starting your own, uh, trying to make a difference in people's lives there, and so many years, so many decades having that hook that this was the place that you were going to really care about it. So what about it stood out and, and, and brought that, uh, that interest and that desire for support in you? I'm, yes, I'm asked that constantly, <clears throat> and I, I think it's the people. I mean, the people that I've met, and then it just, that lump in my heart grows bigger and bigger because I meet more people and I hear more stories. Um, when I was working with ClearPath, I regularly went to Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, and uh, Thailand, and then along the Thai-Burma border. And I made friends that I still communicate with and that uh, I love and um, just have beautiful memories with. But yes, it was meeting the Burmese people. And I, I think that they were so hopeful and loving, and yet their life was so horrific as far as poverty and lack of um, lack of connections with the outside world, and lack of knowledge of the outside world. I just my heart went out to them, but it didn't go out to the other countries as much because people knew about them a bit more and I I didn't see the the smiles and the hope and the uh, yes our life is in the toilet but we're we're still smiling and we're still hopeful and we're still going to help somebody else that's the other thing that Bernice do my closest friends there they give half if not more of their salary if they are paid to help others who have less. And I didn't see that anywhere else. And I, I couldn't believe it at first, but that's what they do. They're always thinking about others. And then there was the Rohingya thing. And how can that be? 
I couldn't get my head around that. How could Buddhists who were so full of love turn against people like that? Again, I think there's a lot of the military coup um, creating an alternate world for people. But it reminded me that not everybody in that country is full of love uh, for everyone else. But even then, I couldn't really be too dismissive of them. I'm, I remember sitting in the taxi with um, a Rakhine man who spoke pretty good English, uh, probably well, it was in the height of the Rohingya crisis, so that would be like 16, 17. Um, and he didn't have a good thing to say about any of the Rohingya people because as far as he was concerned, he saw one side that they were trying to take his land and, and they were um, against all the Muslims. Many of them are Muslim. Um, just he had his own view. And I was surprised, yet once again, to hear that not everybody was as giving and forgiving as um, I had maybe grandiosed in my head. But I do think, bottom line for me, it is the hope and the giving and the... Um, the ability to see the good most of the time, even if it's hard to find. So when I met that woman up at Lake Talang and had that experience up in their little village and hearing more of their stories, um, I, I just knew that I had to do something more tangible. And what can I do? Well, I can do something like send money and um, create an entity that could help provide awareness. And it, like I mentioned, it's just grown. The more people I've met, the more places I've seen in the country. Um, our Delta experience, <laughs> we... Um, it's interesting that building a school really draws a lot of attention if you're fundraising. And so a friend, well, one of the other founders of Educational Empowerment, we watched a video at home about Cyclone Nargis and the utter destruction. And I... I hadn't paid too much attention to it. But then we were both sitting there watching this, and it's like, we've got to do something. What can we do? And on the documentary, they were talking about um, how the schools were mostly demolished uh, down in the Delta. So we looked at each other, and we said, we've got to build a school. And we found uh, helping the uh, Burmese Delta, and what they do is they find a village that might need a uh, school built. And this is something listeners could do also with that entity. So the school they had in the Delta, which is flooded at least half of the year, 
uh, with the tidal action on both sides and all. So they um, go into these areas, and this particular area didn't have much of a school that was damaged. Uh, it was always getting wet, and the books would get wet, and it, it just wasn't working very well. So with the schools that helping the Burmese Delta build, uh, they put them up on cement feet, basically. And in this particular area, uh, the helping the Burmese Delta folks and the villagers were talking together about how much it floods there. So instead of the usual build up 10 feet uh, for the structure, they built up 12 feet. Well, now they are safe every year since because they're those two feet extra above the water level. And the school has become a, an emergency hub. So when it's like full flood season and everybody moves by boat, they um, are still just barely above the water. So people can take their little boat there, get some fresh water, get some um, medicine or some food, and then go back home. And uh, it's one of the few schools built by uh, in the Delta by this entity that uh, is above ground during um, the flood season. And for us going there, it was um, <laughs> like a five-hour car ride from Yangon down there and then uh, another couple of hours by a boat, which 10 of us could fit in. Uh, and they would punt along in the water, which was starting to rise again, but was still low enough to punt. And then we arrived at the school and the villagers have to give the land and they have to commit to maintaining the school. But our school just was lucky and was able to be approved by the government as a school. So it was going to have five teachers. They never had that many before. And they would also even though the teachers aren't always trained very well, it's not like they're college educated either, but it was more than passing the wand from one uh, villager to another to have um, teachers provided for their school. And then it's always above water, and then they get textbooks from the uh, government. Yes, they only learn rote memorization. They don't get to learn critical thinking, to solve problems on their own, but we're hoping to get some in there since it's now educational empowerment um, funded school down there. When we went home from the gala school opening, it was getting dark. And so our little boat was punting along in the dark and the water was, again, kind of not, where you want it to be for punting. So it was about knee high at that point. And because it was so shallow with some of these little canals we were in, they um, would have to get out and stand in the mucky bottom without sinking 
to uh, push at times because like three or four times we got stuck sideways in this little canal and so they had to straighten us out and then it's dark and but then the fireflies came out i had never seen fireflies in my life heard about them never seen them and we had the moon we had the fireflies we'd had a day of a school opening it was a long day, but it was a day I'll never forget. Again, the people who helped us build that school in the village and in this nonprofit and our Burmese people working on the ground there in their own country, it made my heart swell. That's great. And I think that's also just a testament of how treasured education is in Burmese society. I mean, going back historically, there's the historical anecdote that when England made Burma a colony in the 19th century, the literacy rate was actually higher in Myanmar than it was in England at the time. And mm-hmm. of course, it was the the jewel of learning in in all of Southeast Asia. I I have friends in in other Asian countries all over that whose parents or grandparents will talk about still kind of hold in their mind Burma being this this place in the post war, especially where it had the best universities, and they've run them into the ground now. And uh, when I was I was teaching at the American Center. Um, before the transition. And one of the things that I found and that my fellow teachers and trainers there found as well is is that no, no one could really, once someone actually got there in the American Center and was starting to teach, no one could really see it as a job after after a couple of weeks had passed because mm-hmm. they would just start to see the hunger and the appreciation and the dedication that the students were imbibing the knowledge and it, it would just drive teachers to new heights of wanting to provide more and do more because you would just see the changes happening in front of you and how it was being absorbed. You know, I led I led trainings at the American Center, but I also went around the country and went, I did trainings out of churches and monasteries and community centers. I did churches in the middle of Inlay Lake, you know, on, on buildings that were floating on the water. And one of the memories I have is sometimes when I was doing these rural trainings in English, of course, I mean, they weren't translated. We were, the trainings I did, we, we would, uh, English was a requirement, um, to be able to run them, uh, to be able to participate. So because the, 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 the knowledge being imparted was just a, a bit too complicated to go through translation. But I, I have memories of like giving these trainings and there, there would be, you know, villagers or people preparing snacks, or if we were at hotels, uh, people working at the hotels, they would go and sit in the back of the room with notes. You know, I had no idea what they could understand. I had, there are people that I remember doing one training out of a community, a bamboo community library. And I have, I have pictures of this. It was so amusing to me. There, there were, uh, outside of the library, there were a collection of people just standing outside the window, just peering in the entire day, you know, eight hour training, just not just kind of seeing what was going on, but just standing there for the entire day, looking through the window to try to gain this knowledge. It was just the, 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 the hunger for knowledge. And I think there's no other book where that, that comes out quite as vividly as land of green ghosts. Uh, that's the story of a, uh, I think he's Karen ethnic who, uh, who do, who has this unlikely journey to uh, get a literature degree from Oxford, but describing the conditions with which he grew up. I think there's a, a scene from that book, if I remember correctly, of like one 
one book that the whole class was sharing that would be passed around. Mm -hmm. And when there were military in the area, they would have to bury whatever books they had in their village under the ground because they, they didn't want them to be learning. And so they, they would literally bury, uh, dig a hole and bury their books in the ground so that they wouldn't be caught with them because they, they didn't want them to become educated. So the, the, the hunger for learning in that society and the, the hunger for knowledge, I mean, when you see, I think one of the, the recent testimonies of that is when the transition period happened in the 2010s and the state censor resigned his position the growth of new of the newspaper industry of the of the journalism industry of, of people wanting to write about everything and then with the internet the ability for blogs and vlogs and uh, and and posts and everything that that could come just exploded so you know it's it, it's really just another one of those tragedies that for uh, for so many decades, this pattern just keeps repeating. And we just had this brief moment of, as one of my guests put it, I always go back to his metaphor. He described it as being, we had a few years in the sunshine and, and we really liked it. You know, we, we really liked that time in the sunshine and we finally had a chance to grow the way that we always wanted to grow. And it wasn't perfect, but we were taking that chance that all our neighbors had and we never did. And then, and the sunshine wasn't perfect. You know, the, the, the people who had done all these things to us in previous years, they, um, they were living not just without impunity, but they were also, uh, they, they were, they still had power and money and control and everything else. But we're like, okay, okay, that enough. Like, like you've given us the small sliver and that's enough for us to be able to grow our lives. And the billionaire wedding, the, the, the million dollar weddings that you're throwing. Okay. We'll, we'll accept that because we at least have this, this sliver of opportunity that we've never had before. And then they took that sliver away. And that's where the democratic resistance and the protest movement developed and just saying you, you are not going to take this last little sliver that, that was given to us this moment in the sunshine that we now know what it feels like. It's not just phrases of democracy. So many guests have told me that, uh, before the transition, democracy was just these phrases, democracy, human rights, freedom was just being bandied about, but no one really knew what it meant. After the transition, people were living that. As, as you've mentioned earlier as well, they were connecting in their own ways. If they were, if people were interested in organic food or video games or a certain breed of dogs or um, how to, uh, or interior design, wh whatever the fields were, it was, it was starting to grow and blossom and connect with uh, these little passion hobbies of people around the world and, and manifest that. And, uh, and so these, these connections and growth was starting to become a normal civil society. I, I mentioned on another podcast, how, when I went to the first farmer's market in Yangon, I was blown away, you know, having lived through other periods, the fact that I was just going to a simple farmer's market where there were a couple dozen people selling, you know, um, homemade or, or homegrown vegetables and shaved ice and uh, homemade ice cream and kombucha and whatever else was just like, this is, this is so, and I'm not one to get hung up on material things, but it just felt so good that there was now a, a literal marketplace where people could make things they cared about and profit from it. And on the other hand, people could consume things that, that were going towards local businesses and 
they didn't have to just drink, you know, star cola or something. They could, they could have these, uh, the, the, these new kinds of things in their lives that they were deprived of. And, and, uh, uh, another thought built on top of that was, uh, I, I recall how, when I was living before the transition, if you saw anyone that was not even rich, but just somewhat middle-class, somewhat comfortable, you kind of knew they weren't a good person because at that time before the transition, you couldn't really make a decent living wage if you were not somehow in cahoots with the military. And if you just saw a nice car down the street before 2010, that car was, it, it, it could not be other than the car of a diplomat or a crony or someone in the military. Uh, so th- th- it was not possible to be a, a decent person and have a nice car or a nice home driving down the street. And I remember on one occasion, I was in the country for about a year, like 2008 or something. And I took a trip to see my friend in Taiwan. And the first day, every car that went down the street, I was like, Oh my gosh, who's that? You know, what's, what's this kind of person? Because I was, it was just such an automatic subconscious reaction that like, I don't mean nice car, like a Lamborghini or Porsche or anything. I'm talking like nice car, like just, just a normal car that runs. This was before they opened the, the ban on imports, just having a just seeing a, a a decent car was subconsciously in my mind of like, oh, well, this is, if this isn't a diplomat, this is a bad person. And so to be able to, to see these farmers markets, we're getting back to this idea and connecting these two, people could, could make their own living following their passions. Maybe they're going to become a millionaire. Maybe it's just going to be a side hustle. Maybe it's going to be a, something building to a decent wage, but they could follow their passions, build their business, act with integrity, give their customers something that is new and valued and, and enjoyable and be able to support themselves. This simple act was something that never before could happen. And so that's why when I went to the farmer's market, it was just a simple farmer's market. But embedded in that for me was just this this joy that this was now possible for so many people on either side of the aisle that they could now they, they now could have this instead of being deprived of products and services and being deprived of a way to follow their passions and being deprived of a way of making money unless they were going to be extremely unethical. So uh, this is what the society was building for. Just a few years in the sun, this is what they were creating. And when the coup hit, it, it was really this, um, for those of us, those of us allies, I should say, because of course, Burmese all know this in their bones from family stories and and living in the country. But for those of us foreign allies who knew this history and had had lived or experienced at least some part of this history, when the coup hit, it was this, this, this horrible realization, this young generation that they don't deserve this. They, they, they don't know this world. They, they haven't lived in it. They, they lived in a world of imperfect promises and, 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 uh, potential, of opportunities, even if they weren't exactly equitable or they, they weren't exactly comparable with other countries, they, there was at least that glimmer. And to have to take all that away and force these people into uh, just this life of terror and violence and having to defend their basic rights. You know, as another podcast guest said to me, she's like Generation Z, she's like, you know, I, um, my, battle was supposed to be for women's rights. This is, I, I didn't, 
I didn't like in our society the 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 unequal status of men and women, and now I have to go back to fighting for basic human rights. Like, well, what is this? You know how uh, how did I go back uh, several decades or centuries, and suddenly what I'm battling, and to have to see you know, what what they've been doing is really. Uh, it just goes beyond any uh, any expectation of courage and sacrifice of of what they've done this past year, but heading into it, it, it was really just a um, a sadness of knowing what was ahead based on what we knew was behind and what had happened, and uh, and what they were headed into, and that they just they just did not deserve this. You know, they no one deserves it, but to have have lived without this and have grown in a different, more sensitive, safer world, at least if you're a Bamar in the cities. Of course, it's different for ethnics in the countryside. But for 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 a large part of the country, uh, it, was, uh, it was just devastating that that they had to go back into this and that we're still in the middle of this. I know, I know. I yeah, that's those are wonderful. Uh, stories. Thank you for sharing that with me. I love hearing this kind of stuff. Mm. And uh, not the sad stuff, but the fact that you've had your time there and, and you know the country, you know the people, and and you care so much about them also. And over here in the West Coast of the U.S., I don't run into that that much. <laughs> um, I mean, mm. not that they aren't sympathetic, but it's a lot different if you... Um, if he's been there, I mean, it's too bad, but it's true. Um, talking about education and books and everything. Um, when I Am Malala, uh, her story came out, um, and it was so empowering for about girls' education, we were able to uh, translate that into Burmese uh, by a wonderful woman, um, Bernice woman in D.C., Kent Marr. And um, then the organization that I had mentioned, Girl Determined, they've got networks all around the country of these colorful girl peer groups. So they, um, girls come together, they learn how to share information and, uh, and learn about their rights and uh, build confidence and are just empowered to try to follow their dreams and make their dreams come true. And so Girl Determine distributed about 3,000 copies of uh, the Burmese version of I Am Malala to girls all around the country. And then I distributed some here with the um, folks who have uh, immigrated. And it was... It was wonderful to be able to share that Malala story with them. And uh, somebody, actually it was the head of Girl Determined, ran into a, a young woman the other day and, and she brought it up. She said, oh, I read it. I read it. It's the best book. It was so wonderful. It was so empowering. Education. Oh, my. And even after all these years, to have heard about somebody Enjoying that book as much as I enjoyed it was really heartwarming. Um, and then up in Machina, where we had a library, we um, started digital learning 
uh, for young women up there. And they would learn to uh, set up an email account, a Gmail account, uh, how to do Word and PowerPoint and uh, write a letter uh, for a job. And we taught them critical thinking so they would realize, well, maybe my, my problem I need to solve is how to get a job. And so then we would connect the young women with potential entities and many of them, like I'd say maybe half of the ones who graduated from the, the short program, uh, went on to get jobs in areas that they wanted. And unfortunately, I'm sure now they're just trying to, um, we had to stop that program. Uh, and they're probably just trying to survive and have enough food to eat. It's just heartbreaking, as you spoke of. Can I mention a little bit more about the book that? Um, sure, yeah. Thinking, okay, so basically it's about awareness. Uh, I want stories of girls and young women to be heard. I want some of their poetry to be read. I've got pictures that um, I've taken over the years that I love. Um and it's it's just going to be about women and girls and kind of an upbeat, uh, hopeful book um, so that maybe people will pick it up at the bookstore and, oh, this is me and I heard something about it, and read it and then maybe want to do something on their own to help the people there. It's not going to... Um, to be a memoir or a novel, it'll be nonfiction. And um, it was interesting to me with a venture like this. I've learned through the nonprofit and other experiences that for me, I just need to throw things out to the universe. And sometimes they stick, most of the time they don't. But when they do, it's really fulfilling. And so I wanted a picture of. Uh, Rohingya girls, and I was never able to go there in person, and um, I want to, of course, be legit in whatever I publish, and I now know how to search the source of a photo, which was like a big win for me, so I found this photo that I had copied off the web at some point over the last years and it's of two young adolescent age girls walking hand in hand in a idp camp for rohingya and um they look strong and powerful and hopeful and i wanted to use that photo so i found out it was taken by a, a woman from barcelona and she had done um piece on the Rohingya, and it was one of her photos. So I wrote to her and told her what I was, that I was hoping to do a book and create more awareness for women and girls in Myanmar, and wanted to know if I could have permission to use her photo. And then I didn't hear, and I didn't hear, and, and I thought, well, okay, let's delete that. You aren't going to be able to use it without permission. And then, of course, Right after that, I got an email from her saying that, uh, apologizing for being late, she had moved countries from Spain to South America, 
and she would love to have that photo in the book. And she had permission, I had permission, uh, but could I send her a screenshot so to make sure that her friends in Spain, where the photos all are, would um, be able to pull it and it would be the right one. And then she, I could have a high resolution uh, photo to use. And I could not find it. I had deleted it, could not find it, could not find it. Finally found it at the last minute on a hard drive backup of my Mac and sent it to her. And so now eventually I'll get the high-res version of the photo and be able to uh, use it in the book. And um, it was just a highlight in my day, let's say. Hmm. That's, that's great to hear. It's great to hear about all these projects that are ongoing, that are showing different creative kinds of ways of involvement and engagement and, uh, and that form, you know, activism, awareness, raising, fundraising, uh, bringing these issues up there. There's no, uh, there, there's no limits or boundaries for what one can do. And I think it's exciting to hear about those different things that, uh, the people get involved with doing and how how they engage. So that I think in sharing that, it also can motivate others to think of what they can do from their interests and support. You know, we've had uh, just having a nonprofit. We've had people get in touch with us that have done everything from have a bake sale in uh, Berlin and in, in, in some um, yeah. uh, some kind of uh, open park, and then donate all proceeds to artists that have made albums and either donated all or some of the proceeds to to what we do to a a, a cafe in Washington State, actually near you that 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 has uh, has, has purchased a number of of protest art and, um, and, and put out information in their cafe about what's going on. So it's, you know, it's just, it, it's great to hear all these stories of, of different people doing different things from their, their own background. So that's, that's really cool to hear. Uh, I have another personal question, just going back to your 1974 visit there. I asked before in what ways, Burma had changed or in what ways Burma was different in 1974 and then later years. Another question around that is not looking at how Burma was different with itself over time, but how Burma was different with surrounding countries back then. So if you could put yourself back in 74 and when you were on this, this uh, yeah. so-called hippie trail and going to many other countries at that time, if you go back to your memories of those, those initial memories and impressions and experiences, and this is a, a part of the world where they, they share climate and geography, uh, partly a religion, culture, people, everything. Um, so there, there are some commonalities, but in what ways did you feel that Myanmar stood out? On that trip, we also were able to go through Afghanistan. And we were on a, a bus with 30 other hippies from all over the place. And there was an English guy who had an old Mercedes bus that he would drive back and forth between Kabul and um, Istanbul. So when we went into Afghanistan, I vividly remember the first impression. I felt like I'd stepped back into the dark ages. It was... Um, a long corridor on the road of uh, 
lanterns. It was dark at that time. No, no electricity, just lanterns, people on horses, people riding by us, uh, the, the garb, you know, that they were wearing, everything. I felt like I had stepped back into biblical times, let's say. Um, I didn't feel that way with um, Burma because we had been, we'd been in Pakistan, India, Nepal, trekking, um, and then Burma was the, the next stop. So I was already somewhat acclimated to the third world country um, view. And, um, and I had favorable opinions of all those countries and, and my time there and, and all. Uh, so it wasn't as much of a um, shock as that first night driving across the border into Afghanistan. But I never really remember people commenting on Burma. So in India or Nepal, uh, we met a lot of Australians coming up the opposite direction we were going. And we spoke to some of them, and that was kind of how we heard about the seven-day visa. And it was glowing terms. You've got to see this place. It's unlike anything else you've ever seen. Um, and, and I hadn't really been to so many parts of Southeast Asia with pagodas um, everywhere. So I hadn't really experienced that. So that was totally uh, unique for me with the, the gratitude and uh, the gold and um, everything. So, and truthfully, uh, my memories from the 70s, some are vivid and some are, with my age, gone. Uh, at least can't grasp a hold of it at the moment. So I, I can't really remember much else about uh my anticipation, just that I had read about Burma a bit in um, books, and I was curious to see it. And uh, again, the reception of the people, even with the language barrier, people were always very warm and helpful. And and like these women out there smoking their cigars on the porch uh, in Bagan, they, um, I just thought they were strong looking and um, having joyful, they were laughing a lot and curious. Um, so it's not like going into Vietnam where just being communist the way it is, there's all kinds of differences. Uh, warm, welcome, but not the same. And Nepal, especially uh, tracking, um, trekking, it um, just was a whole different world. Sleeping on the floor and eating potatoes and um, just a whole different world also. So 
I think because of Begone, I wanted to go there again. But there are so many places in the world, and I have traveled all my life since I was 19, that I wanted to see that I haven't seen. That if it hadn't been the seven-day visa, we're going to be flying anyway, so why not pop in and out? I, I didn't expect much because I didn't know much. And, and it was an experience where I, I wanted to go back. I couldn't wait to go back to Bagan. And so I did that on my own. My first um, trip to Myanmar, I uh, went up there and thoroughly loved it again and tried to remember back to the 70s when I was there. And uh, I mean, it's still a third world country. So it's not like it's going to the Grand Canyon or something over here. It's, um, it's a different kind of world, but I'm very comfortable in that those types of world now. And then it was still a bit new to me. I don't know if that answers for you, but uh, it's the best I have. <laughs> yeah, and it, it reminds me of the first question I asked to start this interview off was just to reflect on the differences between Myanmar then and now over the course of time that you went. And I, I, I wanted to highlight how interesting it was that your answer basically skipped over 74 to 2010 as and picked <laughs> up from 2010 with the changes. And I, I just want to highlight for listeners that this this big swath of years that where very little has occurred and this this very similar to me i first went in 2003 as a tourist a meditator and then i came in 2007 to live and work and uh nothing really notable or or uh or, or different started to happen until after 2010. I've, I've referenced this story to, on several podcasts, so listeners might get tired of it, but I, I've referenced how like living in Yangon between 07 and 10 or 11 or so, uh, if there was a new restaurant or mall or, or store or any, anything that was built and started, everyone would be talking about it. It didn't matter if it had good food or even if you went there or, or what you thought about it. Everyone would just want to go to the corner just to see what it was because nothing is just a testament to nothing happening, nothing new occurring, no changes. This was the time of constant tea shop gossip of uh, what might happen, what could happen, what you're hearing, but nothing actually does happen. It's, it's really just stuck in time. And it is stuck in time. When you'd walk down the street, you would see newsweeks and times that would be for sale that would be anywhere from five years to 15 years to 25 years old because uh, they didn't have access to, to the newer um uh, the newer papers. I, re- I remember one time in Bojoke Market, someone kind of like looking at me surreptitiously, not thinking, is he going to sell me drugs or, you know, what, what is this? <laughs> and he opens his coat up and it's like a Time magazine with Aung San Suu Kyi on the cover, you know, and he's trying to sell it for like $15, just this, uh, you know, and of course it was, we, we, we might smile at that now, but of course the, the, this guy was risking quite a bit by even holding yeah. that at that time. But um, it it really was a country that was cut off. And I I remember uh, when I was there in 2003, I had never been to a place where there there was just, um, how to say this, uh, of course you have the the lack of access and the, the lack of connection has, uh, the, the way that that cuts off a country is really devastating. Um, 
there was this sense when I was there of an interest and curiosity in the world because they didn't know anything else. And I just remember one day spending it with a couple of monks, just the, the entire day we would, you know, we had some tea and we walked around a pagoda and I went to their monastery. And I just remember throughout the day at various times, one of the monks would, would touch my hand as we were crossing the street. I remember this and he'd say, brother, brother, tell me what are the streets like in your countries? What is it like when you walk down the street? Cause there was no internet. There were no books. There was, there, there's very little television. And me as a foreigner was just this window of access to a world. He couldn't begin to understand. And he didn't, the things he wanted to know were so simple. He wanted to know what were the streets like, you know, he didn't want to know what was democracy or what, you know, what was my education or he just wanted to know what did the streets look like? He, he couldn't think of anything more. Uh, I, I had a friend and around that same time, actually it was 2003, I had a New Zealand friend who became a monk for about a year. And he describes this scene where in the middle of like uh, uh, about a hundred days of uh, an intensive self-meditation retreat, he was dragged to give a talk in front of an assembled crowd who wanted to hear from a foreign monk, uh, kind of awoken from his, his intensive meditation and so as he's preparing to try to talk to the crowd and, and thinking what he can tell them, and of course it's being translated, they start um, calling out to ask him questions. And, you know, they ask, where, where are you from? And he says, oh, you know, I'm from New Zealand. They don't know where that is. He tries to explain. They ask how he came here. He says by plane. They don't know what planes are. So he has to describe the way that planes work in the sky and how they go to other countries. And so the first part of this talk he's supposed to be giving is all about the mechanisms of plane travel and how one can get on a plane and fly to another place and this how um where different countries are in relation to each other and how you reach them and so it was um it was uh i think trying to explain that to someone now and even trying to explain to gen z type of people even trying to explain to gen z burmese who weren't alive or were too young at that time, uh, the, the difference between now, it's really astounding. You know, another one I go back to is Coca-Cola. Um, Coke was, uh, had bottling plants in just about every country in the world, except for two or three prior to the transition. Burma was one of those. The, the day that the, the, the transition started to open up, Coca-Cola was there the next day. I mean, they were literally there with a bottling plant the next day that certain rules were changed. And it, it, I remember going to a training that was led by a foreign trainer that was, that was giving a workshop. And the entire training built on the premise that Coca-Cola was a ubiquitous capitalist product that was available everywhere. And the training just fell flat because in Burma at that time, Coca-Cola was an imported, smuggled, expensive drink that cost a dollar or two a bottle that you only had at upscale restaurants or really fancy parties at that time. And so he's trying to give this talk on using this, this metaphor, this allegory of, of the ubiquitousness uh, of, of Coca-Cola, not knowing his audience that many of them would have never had it. Or if they did, it might be a couple times a year, a couple times in their life. It was this fancy upscale beverage before the transition. And that was a moment that also really underscored for me 
how useless it was trying to bring in these foreign experts that weren't trying to understand the local culture, that weren't trying to work with the local society and customs to be able to deliver their knowledge in a way that was the most effective and the most practical and relevant to understanding the conditions people were living in. And when you you were just giving a kind of uh, recycled, rehearsed talk that might work in a hundred different countries, it wouldn't work in Myanmar in ways that you wouldn't know unless you were actually ingrained and interested and connected to what those and curious to what their actual reality was. So, uh, you know, I think that, um, that when you look at the way the country had changed starting any year up until about 2010, these were very incremental changes. These were, you know, if an, uh, going back, if, if a new Thai restaurant was built on the corner of in road, that was the exciting thing that happened that month, you know, up until 2010 or the tea shop rumors. But it was really once the transition started that you really started to see this massive change, you know, month by month is, Oh, now there's new cars. Now there's ATMs. Now there's banks. Now there's, now there's Coca-Cola, you know, and, uh, and it was just like month after month, just, um, uh, of, uh, of cataclysmic change that really hadn't been seen before. I think that, um, when I think of the coup, it's a potential loss of dreams for all these young people. And, um, I don't want them to lose their dreams. I want them to have hope and, you know, I hope they do, but that's, I think what bothers me the most. Well, there's all the violence and the atrocious violence and everything, but like you indicated, people were like coming alive and, and looking to maybe start a business or, um, they'd always kind of thought of doing ABC and, and now maybe they could, and they've been learning ways to do it. And it, yeah, so exciting to see all of that, and then to have it just dashed in a in a nighttime is um, beyond tragic. But yeah, it is, and that's what we're trying to do with these kinds of discussions to bring awareness to it, to talk about what mm-hmm. people can do beyond just listening, how they can be involved and uh, to inform, um, to, to provide greater information. Myanmar has suffered so long being characterized one dimensionally through just easy narratives, simplistic reductionist narratives. And I think one of the real interest in doing this podcast is just to show the, how dynamic it is, how multidimensional, how many different parts of society and individuals and communities are are doing different things and try to break down this one-dimensional storyline to uh, provide greater information so that uh, people can engage with that in, in their own way. Yeah, no, I, I think it's so powerful and I really commend you all for doing what you're doing. Totally. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Being a small, mostly volunteer team, Our production time for a single episode before the coup was sometimes as long as four months from start to finish. While we had worked at decreasing the lead time, the fastest we were ever able to manage was just around three weeks. Yet during this current crisis, where even a single day's event can produce such shocking news and urgent needs, we simply don't have this luxury of time. So we've worked around the clock to substantially shorten the length of our production cycle. The turnaround for some episodes now has been just 36 hours. 
However, we can't accomplish this goal without your support. If you found value in today's episode and think that others may also benefit from this type of content, please consider making a donation so that we can continue our mission. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the purchasing of protective equipment and medical supplies, COVID relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support. Perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org. And donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give in another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.